Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Everyday Spirituality Week 4. I would just say before we get too far down the road, the TV I dragged out and set up, and that is an achievement in itself. And why was I doing that? Just a little bit of more in-house information. Aaron, our beloved worship pastor, and his wife Allison had their third child just a few days ago, or just a week and a bit ago. Um, Clara Beth is her name. She is beautiful based on the pictures. I saw Aaron arrive at church just a few days ago and I dashed out to see if the baby was in the car and she wasn't. And I said, oh, it's just you. And, uh, and, and then went back to what I was doing. So eventually we'll get to Mido. We're excited to do that. But Aaron is taking a, a few weeks off just to, to celebrate that, to join in the late night feeds and all of those different things. And we'll be excited when he comes back, but so thankful for the wonderful people that have jumped in in his place in this season. Th- this series is centered around this question. How do you take next steps on your journey when life is busy? If you and I have chosen to follow Jesus for ourselves, what happens when we get into seasons of life where rhythms are just off? For some of you, summer is that season. Maybe you have kids in school. And so suddenly now everything looks different. Suddenly you may be thinking about, wow, I have seven hours of of childcare to fill. Maybe you are a grandparent and you are the seven hours of childcare. You suddenly find yourself full-time parenting again. And and most of you that that do the grandparent thing, you've said to me, this is so good. If I'd known how good it was, I would skip parenting and have gone straight to it. So to be back in the mix, that that must be tough for you guys. We hit these times, these seasons where life is busy and growing in faith, continuing to journey with Jesus. Our rhythm gets thrown off. It can be difficult to figure out just how to do that. This is centered around Paul's hope for this church in Rome. Paul is a writer of most of the New Testament, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. He says this, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. I would suggest that the best gift you and I can give to this community, to our marriages, to our families, to our housemates, all of those different, uh, different things, different people we interact with, is, is to become the person into which Jesus is transforming us. The greatest gift you can give to those around you is the person into which Jesus is transforming you. This faith, this journey with Jesus is based on this idea that you and I might change, that we might become different people. We might grow into that person that looks more like Jesus than the person that we started as. Jesus' beautiful way of describing how this feels, and I I use the word feel intentionally. Jesus' way of describing how this life of faith should feel is here. Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In this contemporary language version called The Message, it expresses it like this. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. 
I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And maybe just as you hear language like unforced rhythms of grace, you might say, that sounds good. Because nothing in my life right now feels unforced or feels like it has the right rhythm. And grace maybe feels like something that we ideally live into and yet so much of our life can feel like this feels like work right now. A friend from last week, uh, Mr. Ken Shigematsu, expresses it like this, and maybe it's his way of saying the same thing. What if there was a way to experience God as your deep center, not only in your formal prayers and Bible reading, but in the midst of your studies, work, exercise, and play? What if there was a way to enjoy God as you move about your day? What if there was a way to experience God as you move about your day? This week, I'd love to invite us into this spiritual discipline, into rediscovering a healthy rhythm of life. We've looked so far at using these odd spiritual disciplines to to help us grow in the way of Jesus. We've we've tapped into what it is to take a walk, to, to do something that's very normal and use that as a place for contemplation. We also looked at what it was to trudge, to simply keep on going when it's hard to keep going. We looked at the idea of fasting, of taking away something that we see as a common thing and and expressing, God, you feel absent right now. I, I would love to see you make yourself present. And then we looked at feasting as this celebration of the fact that God has filled that absence. The void has been filled and he is now present in a distinct and different way. But those are all micro things. They're all good, they're all important, they're all taking things of everyday life and using them to grow spiritually. But what if our whole rhythm is off? What if we're living in such a way that, that isn't unforced rhythms of grace, that doesn't look how Jesus, like how Jesus operated? Because what I would suggest is you have a life rhythm, it just depends what it is. A, a rhythm is a certainty. The, the question I would have for you is, is your rhythm healthy? Is your way of being, your way of operating in the world, the different things that you participate in? A rhythm is a certainty. Is it healthy? Now, if you grew up in a spiritual tradition like I did, you may have caught this idea that somewhere the only thing Jesus is really interested in is what you do for him. And so South is a community that has many wonderful, uh, a wonderful tradition of different missionaries that participate in this community. We have some of them visiting today, and, and that's always a joy. And yet I grew up in a tradition that really said this, unless you are a missionary, you've missed your calling in life. That was the only thing that was really worth doing. And so I did the thing where I came out to the front of the church hundreds of times and I signed up to go and be a missionary somewhere, at least in my heart, without putting pen to paper. The the, the concept I got was unless I was in church or unless I was doing something practically to reach my friends, God wasn't really interested in the rest of my life. And yet with Jesus, what you see is someone who is very aware of the importance of certain rhythms. Next week, we'll look at rest and how rest is a tradition for all of Scripture. This week, we're going to look at something that you may not associate with the life of Jesus, and that is play. This is John chapter 2. The first sort of moment Jesus enters public ministry, we read, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. Somewhere in this story, what we read is that Jesus' rhythm of life allowed him space to be able to attend a wedding for four or five days. When you think about Jesus and who he was, what his role was in this world, he's the person that has come to save this world through his death and resurrection. He's the person that has come to provide compelling teaching that offers us a new way to live. And somewhere in the midst of that thousand days that he sets aside to do this, Jesus takes four of them and he goes to a wedding. He goes to the celebration, the, the, the entertainment of the day, the thing that everyone in the community would have looked forward to for months and possibly years. Jesus finds time for that. You could take a few of the micro lessons from this story. There's multiple, actually, that we could draw. We could take the idea that Jesus uh, has... He cares about the social stigma of a young couple that might have a wedding that ran out of wine. We could say that he does something for his mother and that's a caring attitude. There's all these different things we could talk about how when he says about new wine, he's really inaugurating this new kingdom. But on a macro story level, Jesus takes four days and he goes to a wedding and he celebrates with people that he loves. And when I look at what my rhythm of life looked like in following Jesus early on, it was very rarely that gracious or very rarely offered that much space to live in C.S. Lewis' wonderful story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the Lion Aslan. And if you never read this story as an adult, go back and read it. It will bring so many elements of this Jesus story to life. But when this Lion Aslan has been raised for the dead, there's this moment where the, the world still needs saving. This mythical world still needs saving. And there's a witch to defeat and a battle to join and all of those different things to happen. And yet there's this pause before any of that happens. And we read, and whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. And the funny thing was that when they all three finally lay together panting in the sun, the girls could no longer, no longer felt the least tired or hungry or thirsty. And now, said Aslan presently, to business. In this story, before saving the world, before the witch is defeated, this Aslan creature that, that is this type of Jesus he takes time for a cosmic game of tag or something like that. There is this entry into play that is compelling. There is time. There is space. And I just wonder as a question whether we at times aren't time poor people. There's all kinds of poverty. There's financial poverty. There's material poverty. And we see that all over the news every day. You go to a country like Haiti and you see it. And then there's relational poverty. Uh, there's that experience of not having close community. And it's interesting that, again, I spent many days in Haiti on different trips, and, and you go and you see, no, you see financial poverty, but you, you see no relational poverty there. And then maybe there's chronological poverty. Maybe there's just this lack of control of the amount of time we spend on different things. And when I say that maybe we're invited to recover a rhythm, maybe that rhythm actually includes work, play and rest. 
And as we tap into that, as we wrestle with that idea, I'd love us to do that through this book that you may have read, but perhaps just passed over because it's hard to understand. We're going to tap into this book, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the teacher, that Hebrew word is koaleth. It means more preacher, perhaps, than teacher. Son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the person writing is Solomon, the king after David. And he's going to give us his understanding of what the world looks like. And it is the upbeat, positive message that you got up on Sunday morning to come to church for. The words of the teacher. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, Everything is meaningless. It's just so delightfully upbeat, isn't he? Everything's going to be fine somehow, some way. It's, it's all meaningless. What does this word mean? How do we capture that? The word is, is Hebrew word, habel. This teacher will use it 38 times. And yes, meaningless is an okay English translation, but doesn't really get to the heartbeat of what he's trying to convey. A, a maybe better understanding is vapor, transient, insubstantial. It is that. It's vapor. (laughs) What does this teach us? What do we learn from vapor? What can't you do with it? Transient is a great word for it, right? It just, it disappears. It's not bad or good. The, The teacher doesn't label it as good or bad, doesn't judge it just simply says, it, it is what it is. It's vapor. It's good for lots of things. It's good for spraying worship leaders when they run over their time, letting people know the announcements are done, for getting cats off counters, all those different things. And yet, he chooses it. He chooses to illustrate or chooses to grasp this idea of just what is around us. He says, it's all, it's all vapor. Can't grasp it. Can't hold onto it. It's transient. It's insubstantial. It cannot be controlled. It's that, that, that is the thing. That is the word. Ecclesiastes at its heart is about, is about control. It's a, about our belief that we can, we can manage the stuff around us, manage the vapor, that we can hold on to it, that we can grasp it. That the harder we go, the harder we participate, the more we're grasping. Yet in the end, it always, it always disappears. When he says meaningless, he's not saying it's bad or good. He's not saying it doesn't matter even. He's just saying it's, it's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And as he goes on in his understanding of meaningless, he's, he's going to go for one thing that I think perhaps in this country we value more than almost anything else. He's going to hit us in our our core. He's going to hit us in the thing that we we hold on to dearly. He's going to hit us in our work life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he says, And then I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the vapor, the wind, the breath. When he starts off, he unpacks these different ways of approaching work. He says that fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Don't do that is almost where he lands. Don't just be the person that sits back and does nothing. But then there's two other postures that he gives us as well. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Better to have enough 
than to keep running after more. Remember, he starts this whole passage by saying there is is this idea that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. So don't let the fact that you want more stuff chase you into working more and more and more. Realize that when you do, you're chasing that and it can't ultimately be grasped. It can't be held onto. It can't be controlled. He gets even more direct in the next couple of verses in verse 7 and 8. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. The the picture is of a man who doesn't have anyone to leave his inheritance to. He's constantly seeking more stuff, constantly seeking more possessions, constantly seeking to control the vapor that cannot be controlled and cannot be held onto. And doesn't that hit us a little bit where we live? As I was looking at this, I just happened to look at how we structure society. This is a list of of how we see paid vacation and paid holidays worldwide. And you look at at how we stack up as a nation right now. and, And there's all these different nations that offer time away, time to not work. And you see us at the bottom with zero. The average working time in the United States is 1,750 hours. And in most other countries, it hits 1,400, 1,300. Now, what I want you to not hear in that is me saying that America is bad, that we're doing things wrong. In actual fact, we, we do lots of things right. This isn't about which nation is best or anything like that. that is about, this is about me saying, in the context we live, my job as a pastor is to care for all of us and think about how we might get pulled off in different directions that may be our unhealthy ways of operating. What is the tendency of this nation? What is our particular quirk? And and is it possible that your rhythm of life and my rhythm of life has been affected by that somewhere we are a nation that values and lives into work? And that comes with some incredible benefits. It means that salaries are high. Possessions are many. Houses are big. And yet what if all of that costs something in the way of balance, costs something in the way of living? Maybe I would start by saying maybe you take an inventory of your rhythm. If Jesus values play and Jesus values rest, and even with him, with his role that shapes this universe, still finds time to pause in those things, maybe it's important that you and I do the same. And and as we follow this line of thinking in Ecclesiastes, we get to chapter 8, and he says something that I never expect to turn up in a book within the Bible, because it seems almost contradictory. Chapter 8, verse 15, So I recommend having fun. Because there is nothing better for people in this world than to eat, drink, and enjoy life. Uh, that way they, ex- they will experience some happiness along with all the hard work God gives them under the sun. It feels almost out of place. And when I read early writers on Christian ethics, they say things that almost seem a little bit contrary to that. This was a, an anonymous French priest. Never smell a flower. Never drink when parched with thirst. Sounds awful. St. John of the Cross, do not turn to what pleases but to what disgusts. Despise yourself and wish others to despise you. This was their understanding of what it was to follow Jesus. And, And in case you've missed it, the world's understanding of who we are as people that do follow Jesus, well, well, that's more in line with these two quotes than Ecclesiastes, so I I recommend that people have fun. 
in, in the wonderful cartoon, The Simpsons, there's a moment where Bart Simpson is so bad he gets sent to Springfield Christian School and this is the sign that welcomes him as he arrives. Springfield Christian School, we put the fun in fundamentalist dogma as if it wasn't fun enough. There's more fun to be had. That's the picture that the world has. And, and I would have to say that maybe there's some accuracy there. Helmut Felicki said this, the sulfur stench of hell is nothing compared to the stench of divine grace gone putrid. Jesus invites us to live his unforced rhythms of grace. And yet I think as we look at how we think about work and play and rest, many of us would say there's, there's somewhere there's a deep suspicion that we may be missing those beautiful rhythms we're invited to. The Westminster Confession says this, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Written in that code of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, there is this idea of enjoyment, pleasure in God, and by extension in his good creation that he has given us to operate in. And yet somewhere most of us would say early on we start to miss those incredible moments in life because we are simply busy people in a rush with too much to do and too much vapor to control. This uh, man walked into a subway in Boston a few years ago and began playing a violin. He played a few different songs over the course of an hour and a half and everybody walked past. The guy is Joshua Bell. He's the greatest violinist alive today. He played some of the most famous pieces ever written on a, on a violin that was worth $3.5 million. The night before, people had paid over $100 a ticket to go and watch him play and people were offered it for free as grace and they wandered past with no attention whatsoever. I say people wandered past. Adults wandered past, but regularly children tried to stop only to be dragged on by the adults that they were with. They were able to recognize the good gift they were being offered. They were able to pause to play. It was the adults that were too unwise to do the same. When we put sermons, when we put services on YouTube, we usually pick a title for the sermon that people might search so people can find the right content. But I usually have a title that describes more what I really feel about the sermon that's kind of like somewhere in the back of my mind. If I was going to give this message a title, I would call it Making Time for Stick Tree. Making Time for Stick Tree. Because the other day I got one of the most compelling invites that I have ever had. My four-year-old son came up to me and he looked me in the face and he grabbed me and he said, Daddy, do you want to play stick tree with me? Do you want to play stick tree with me? I did some investigative work just to, to make sure I was in, in the know. And, and it turns out that stick tree is, is this wonderful game. What you do is you, you go and you find a stick. And then you go and find a tree. And then you stand there and you hit the tree with the stick. <laughs> and you just keep doing that until you find something else to do. Do you want to play stick tree with me? And what I said is this. I said, actually, daddy's really busy. And I have some stuff to do. And I need to go and do it. But I actually wonder if I didn't really miss out by not playing stick tree. And I actually wonder whether the things that I thought were so important uh, were that important. And I actually wonder if in those moments, I wasn't chasing vapor again. I wasn't trying to control the thing that can't be controlled. I wasn't trying to make sure that something that I thought couldn't be undone 
was not left undone. And I just wonder whether I should have chosen stick tree over all of those things. The writer Sarah Maitland says, this play is economically unproductive. There is no marketable product. It is out with the laws of patents and copyright. It cannot easily be commodified. It's a skill without monetary value. And above all, it is an activity requiring leisure. The sort of time that isn't money. We use that phrase, right? Time is money. It's the sort of thing that isn't money. It can't be judged on a monetary value. It can't be judged as vapor. It can't be judged by control. It's something, simply something we can participate in or not. When Jesus was asked about the kingdom of heaven, this is the conversation that took place. Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus invited a little child to stand amongst them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Somewhere Jesus, he equates participation in his kingdom with the principles, the way of thinking of a child. They don't chase the greatest title. They aren't concerned with that and they aren't concerned with this either. They simply have time for stick tree and are unashamed in their time for stick tree. The world isn't so busy that they can't stop for a violinist playing wonderful pieces of music. They aren't chasing the vapor. They aren't trying to control everything around them. They are more like Jesus in that respect than we are because we are busy and we are controlling everything and we are making it all happen. The thing about play and the thing about rest, as we'll get to next week, is that they, they, they are things that require us to trust that the vapor will manage itself, that it will take care of itself. We recognize in those moments we aren't in control. We can't make it all happen. The writer G.K. Chesterton says this, children have an abounding vitality because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the adult does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt him monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt him monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has an, the eternal appetite of infancy. The writer Alice Merton says, uh, why are we so serious? Why so serious? When did we get like this? I still remember we weren't grown up like this. The other day I was walking early in the morning and I watched all of the kids out playing baseball and watched the joy with which they participated. And I remembered when a friend who worked in the clubhouse for a major league team said to me, you know the players that make it, the players that thrive in the baseball world? They're the ones that still play like children. They're the ones that still love what they do and find a passion for it. I have this suspicion that a sign of anxiety is an absence of playfulness. Now, we've talked about anxiety a fair few times here itself. We've talked about how it has a whole metabolic thing that's going on, and, and it's, it's broad and complicated, and yet there is a sense of anxiety that is simply about control. I recognize when I am trying to control, and I know that I become anxious, and I know my capacity for stick tree diminishes with every increase of my anxiety and desire for control too. Children are able to engage in play because they believe their provision is assured as somebody else in whose ability to provide they have come to trust is in control. 
perhaps simply for us in our desire to work, our desire to control, our desire to amass, our desire to chase vapor, we need to acknowledge that we actually don't trust that Jesus will do what he said he will do. When Jesus talks about worry, one of his commands to his followers was, don't worry about tomorrow. It has enough worries of its own. Take care of what needs to be done today. When I get so absorbed with the future and building more possessions and making sure that I have plenty stored up, I have to recognize that one, I am not been like Jesus, and two, I perhaps don't trust him at all. If children are able to do that and the children are our model that Jesus gives us for what it is to participate in his kingdom, maybe my question for us is, how do we learn their lesson? And maybe to follow up from an inventory of your rhythm of life and my rhythm of life, we might ask, where are the areas where we experience anxiety? Maybe I see my desire to collect more possessions to make sure I have enough wealth for the future, to make sure my savings account is robust, to make sure I never have to wait for a provision and I can always just go to a bank account and make it all happen. But maybe as well as identifying anxiety, I have to ask myself the question, what brings me joy? What are the things that I love to do? And if Jesus can unashamedly participate in something joyful, maybe I have permission to do the same as well without feeling guilty about wasted time, without feeling that there's more to be done that I've just missed. Maybe there's more vapor to chase. The word amateur is fascinating. Often we define it as one who does things badly. It's things that just, you know, you're not a professional and so you don't get paid. And yet the, the true definition of amateur is one who does something for its own sake. Last week, I got into trouble with some people that had maybe moved from Chicago at some point because I really laid into Chicago-style pizza and just said, you know, it's not really pizza. And I stand by that. But I, I want to get back on their good side. So let's for a moment just talk about the greatest basketball player to ever live. Michael Jordan was famous for writing his first professional contract and demanding something that no basketball player had ever asked for. He had a clause written in that has become known as the love of the game clause. What that meant is this, Michael Jordan was the only basketball who could drive through South Chicago, see a pickup game of basketball and say, I'm going to go and play in that. Usually the cost of being a professional athlete is that you're not allowed to play for fun, you're not allowed to just stop and play games, everything is controlled and managed and yet for Michael Jordan that was never true. He, he walked that line between amateur and professional, he managed to be both at the same time, he loved that thing so much, he participated in it whenever he wanted to participate in. In England, we have village cricket, which is a cult of its own, and a professional player recently joined a village team and hit 300 runs, which I know you guys don't know cricket, that's a lot of runs, uh, and everyone was really mad at him, but then they found him afterwards scrubbing the floor of the clubhouse and participating in all the other activities. All it was really is he'd found something that brought him joy and he was participating in it. What do you do? What do you enjoy for its own sake? Maybe Jesus in his unforced rhythms of grace gives us permission to participate in something like that. Maybe then you get to create intentional space to enjoy it. 
Now, as I talk about rhythms, one of the things I'm aware is that many of us in the room are married, and I'm not speaking into the marriage rhythm of who gets to play and who gets to work and all of those different elements. I'm going to leave you to figure that out. I'm not going to tell you what in your life is work and what in your life is play and what in your life is rest. You get to figure that out. But I am saying if you want to experience that freedom Jesus experienced, somewhere it has to be intentional. In the screw tape letter, C.S. Lewis says this, out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least, sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, and working. There is so much to be done, and you are invited to participate as Jesus participated. So I recommend having fun because there is nothing better for people in this world than to eat, drink, and enjoy life. That way they will experience some happiness along with all the hard work God gives them under the sun. Seems God values work very deeply. He also values play very deeply. He also values rest very deeply. And in the midst of that, in the midst of celebrating what it is to experience life with God, we get to give thanks for the gift that we have received Paul's advice to this church in Colossae is this, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The same writer of Ecclesiastes, the writer we've been sort of working with this entire time, says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Have you found that rhythm? Or is central to your life chasing the thing that can't be controlled? can't be managed, that simply is. A rhythm is a certainty. How is Jesus calling you to shape yours? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are present with us. Thank you that you modeled a healthy life rhythm for us. God, when I think about the footsteps that your work took, the journeys, the energy, when I think about you healing person after person that came to you and I think about your death and resurrection, this great work of yours that provides new life for us to walk in. I am so thankful. And when I watch you engage in play, when I consider that you would take time for a wedding ceremony, take time to make more wine when there was no wine, when I think about the way that children interacted with you that suggest that somewhere you were fun, I'm thankful when I watch you rest and know when the work that you could do had been done and enough was enough. I thank you for your life rhythm, for unforced rhythms of grace. God, I pray that you would make me wise enough to see when I've done what I can do, to recognize I can't control all the things I think I can control and that I'm free to make some time for stick tree. Amen. 
If God is working your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.